They say 9-11 changed everything. I was seven years old when it happened, so I can't really say how true that is. I did take a few flights with my family before then, including to Barcelona in 2000, but I remember the airport security on those trips about as well as I remember my foreskin. I don't know when I first had to put my shoes through the x-ray machine, but I remember learning we all had to take our shoes off because that one guy had a bomb in his shoe that one time. I couldn't even tell you how many people the shoe bomber killed. Likewise, the underwear bomber. Remember him? I do. Every time I have to put my hands over my head in those big x-ray machines. Fun fact, I like to wear an old pair of jeans with a ripped crotch when I fly so that the scanner detects an anomaly and whoever's on shift gets to pat down my inner thigh. It's a great way to say shalom to the airport cops. Remember, a cab. But that's neither here nor there. Point is, September 11th, 2001 was early enough in my life that while I was aware my country changed in certain ways after that day, those changes are as natural to me now as seatbelt laws and income tax. I have only vague memories of the day itself. I don't think I saw any TV coverage before school, but that was a very special day at school indeed. Even the teachers were sad and scared, and everyone was talking about war. There hadn't been any more attacks after the morning, and we were reassured that our little city was safe on California's central coast, but uncertain times lay ahead for the country. We all felt the trauma of what had happened, and going to war over it just made sense. Our country had been attacked, and lots of Americans were dead, so we ought to avenge the fallen and remind the world why the USA is number one. I truly had a child's sense of history back then. I knew we'd won a bunch of wars, become the strongest, richest, most kick-ass nation on Earth, and we sure taught Japan a lesson after Pearl Harbor, which was the historical comparison on all our minds that day. I was hearing talk of World War III, with only the most simplistic notions of the world, and war for that matter, in my developing brain. I hadn't heard of Islam, Afghanistan, or any member of Saudi Arabia's illustrious Bin Laden clan. Heck, I didn't even know what the World Trade Center and the Pentagon were for. I don't know how long it took me to learn all this stuff, but I noticed immediately that flags sprang up everywhere, in front of houses and public buildings, on cars, trucks, and SUVs, on people's desks and pinned to their lapels. In the uncertain weeks and months after that day, we found a kind of solidarity in what we had been through together as Americans. It was the last time I saw my country united. For a moment, we could put our differences aside and rally round the flag, the nation looked to its president for leadership and seemed to forget all the hard feelings from the prior year's election. Speaking of which, let's stay on memory lane a bit and revisit election 2000, Bush v. Gore, the first time I was really aware of politics. I was six years old, and I remember trying to stay up late with my parents as we watched the states turn red and blue. My parents were Republicans, which meant that we cheered for the red team and wanted the guy from Texas to win, which was the extent of my political understanding in those simpler days. But what really stuck with me about that election was how I woke up the next day, and we still didn't know who the new president was. My baby sister had been born that October, so we marked on her baby calendar when we finally got the result. If I remember correctly, it was like a month later, and when the news came out, half the country felt like they had been cheated. I heard there were problems counting the votes in Florida, and it was ultimately the Supreme Court that decided in favor of George W. Bush by a vote of five to four, so it was like most people's votes didn't even count. I bring this up because I think it's significant that the event that popped my political cherry cast such a pall of confused contention over the country, and yet, 2000 was tame compared to the shit I've seen as an adult. As far as I can tell, the political animosity I first noticed at six years old has only gotten worse. Go on. Tell me our country is headed in the right direction. But traumatic as it was, 
9-11 gave us all a little temporary relief from this tension as we helped one another cope with our national tragedy. We understood the value of our common identity as Americans and felt that life in this country was a precious gift for which we ought to be grateful. It's remarkable how shared suffering can bring people together like nothing else, but soon wars and rumors of wars brought our political rancor back in full force. Sure, Afghanistan seemed like a good idea at the time, but when it was announced in 2003 that we were going to war in Iraq, I was as surprised as General Wesley Clark. I was nine years old then, and I remember learning in school one day about weapons of mass destruction, mustard gas, man-made plagues, bombs that could poison the earth for generations, how Saddam Hussein was making them, and he was connected to Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and 9-11 and terrorism. My parents continued to cheer for the red team, and I shuddered to think what could happen if the people behind the 9-11 attacks got hold of a nuke. I was too young to have real opinions about this stuff, but I thought it was a nice thing for our country to do to help folks in Iraq free themselves from a horrible dictator. I felt like my parents were right to support the president, but it was clear that not everyone felt that way. There were good-natured arguments at family gatherings, and I gleaned enough over the years to understand that my folks didn't exactly see eye-to-eye -eye with the leadership at our church and school, either. I began to see bumper stickers saying peace is patriotic and dissent is patriotic. You think any of those old Bush haters would be caught dead saying dissent is patriotic today? I remember those yellow ribbon stickers that said support our troops came out with tongue-in-cheek variants saying things like, support our troops despite our leaders, and support our troops, bring them home. I remember coverage of anti-war protests on Fox News. I remember Bill O'Reilly going after Code Pink and the Dixie Chicks for their criticisms of good old W. <laughs> Believe me, the amount of hate George W. Bush got from the unhinged, chattering classes was insane. And it's just sickening how the stuffed suits in the corporate media suddenly got nostalgic for the days of W once Trump came along and outshone him like the fucking sun in terms of unhinged oligarchical hatred. But back then it felt like the country was very divided. And as the war dragged on, more and more people grew skeptical of the official stories about Saddam's WMDs and Al-Qaeda connection. The intelligence community really should have known better, but come on, man, they had careers to make, and nothing makes a career like war. But I was a kid. I still thought we were fighting the Iraqi War of Independence. And frankly, I believed in the American way of life. I'd always felt incredibly lucky to be born and raised in this country. And I thought it was a noble project for the US military to go around remaking the world in its image. If some religious knuckle-draggers in nowhere land wanted to deny the end of history, that was their own damn fault. Better the USA run the world than anywhere else, after all. I really used to think this was the greatest country ever, that our way of life was clearly superior, and we just owed it to the world to bring them up to our level, leading them by shock and awe, if necessary, into the new American century. White man's burden, anyone? Just thinking this way now feels like an absolute perversion of American values. To act like our country has the right to gallivant overseas and tell other people how to organize their own country is to betray the spirit of America for the spirit of empire that our country's founders fought to escape. I know we're not even close to the same people who won the revolution, but still, our nation-building experiments make a mockery of our founding principle that a people has the right to determine its own destiny. And sure, all this highfalutin moralizing has little to do with our initial justifications for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, but that's part of the point. The people who sold us these wars whipped the public up into a patriotic frenzy, 
kept us afraid and promised to keep us safe, but it seemed like the tighter we tried to hold the world, the less safe it got. But why was the world so unsafe in the first place? What made people such a threat to our country? The 9-11 attacks were not random outbreaks of violence. Their targets symbolized American political, financial, and military dominance of the world. An act of terrorism so great, terrible, yes, but great, is not undertaken lightly. This was an epic event involving dozens of conspirators, many of whom gave their lives to send us a message in spectacular telegenic orange against the September sky. But why? What did they have against us? The commonly echoed rationale was that they hate us for our freedom. As a child, I took this to indicate a kind of envious resentment, like people around the world couldn't stand that life was so much better here, and they just want our country to suck like theirs, in which case, why couldn't these benighted people only see that we came with offers of genuine American freedom, and they could share in everything that made us so great if they would just give up their silly old ways of life and live like Americans? It worked in Europe. That was like the major narrative arc of the 20th century. But to some, I guess the story of American global leadership is a tragedy. And I must admit, we've fallen far from the shining hilltop city of the Puritans. Might freedom not be quite all it's cracked up to be? Don't get me wrong, I still think America is a great country, and in most cases I really do prefer freedom to its alternatives. But it's worth facing the fact that the opportunities offered by our free culture are not universally good. Life in the USA isn't all social mobility and political action, and there's nobody digging for gold in these streets. This country certainly represents the promise of a better life for many people. But for many others, the American way of life is something like a global moral plague, libertinism packaged and sold as liberty. Imagine what strange fruits the other side sees hanging from our bloody tree. Aimless youth and useless age, fathomless avarice, alienated labor, spiritual vacuity, artistic decadence and the wholesale degradation of tradition, tent cities in the shadows of skyscrapers, heads overstuffed with insipid pop culture and the jargon of squabbling subcultures, a nation of rootless narcissists, a nation of sophists and moneylenders, a nation of queers and whores and junkies of all stripes, booze and television, pot and pharmaceuticals, social media and video games and gleaming plastic garbage, pipes and pens and pills and needles, slots and stocks and lotteries and double bacon cheeseburgers and cronuts and hardcore pornography. By Allah, sometimes I hate us for our freedom too. Point is, it's not without reason that our nation is the great Satan to some, and we do well to remember that our values are far from universal. It would be all right, though, if we could just keep our ugly American hands off the world. It's not like our enemies came out of nowhere, after all. Osama used to be our guy, back when he was a freedom fighter putting up heroic resistance against the Soviet Empire. We gave Osama and his Mujahideen buddies all kinds of money and weapons and training, so they were good and ready to take over Afghanistan when the communists left. Did we not encourage these people to defend their way of life against the march of a godless machine society? And in the end, weren't we always so much more like those hated Russians than either of our countries was like Afghanistan? In a way, Jeremiah Wright's infamous sermon about America's chickens coming home to roost on 9-11 turns out to have a little truth at its core. Need I mention our support for Saddam in the Iran-Iraq war? 
All the WMDs that guy had were courtesy of the USA. Ever heard of the Syrian Civil War? Timber Sycamore, anyone? How about Libya and the way our State Department stabbed Gaddafi in the back? And these are just the examples that led to wars in my lifetime. There's hardly a country on earth that hasn't felt our strong hand rest its thumb on the scale of their politics, and so often so shamelessly. Our name has become a byword for globe-trotting greed and the corruption of nations. And for what? To keep the world safe for democracy? That's so funny I almost laughed. Do you, dear listener, feel safer than you did in 2001's infamous Summer of the Shark? Do you at least feel safer at the airport than when you were young? Really? What was the point of all those thousands of lives and trillions of dollars and Byzantine laws and measureless man-hours spent in impotent performance of security theater? What I see is a test, a question posed to the public. What will we let our betters get away with for the sake of safety? Will we let fear poison our way of life and deform our society past all recognition? Are we just dying to be led? Signs point to yes. And there's plenty of blame to go round for our national terror, but the whole thing has the inevitability of a true tragedy. Each of us who swallowed the propaganda bears some responsibility, and a much greater share of the blame falls to our media institutions, those venerable stewards of democracy with their job of helping the public make informed decisions. But what choice did the media have? As the 21st century dawned, competition with 24-hour cable and the internet subjected even our most eminent epistemic organs to the ruthless market forces of the attention economy. Each media company's obvious incentive is to capture as much of our time and emotional energy as possible, and nothing makes us pay attention like fear. So I think the real tragedy of 9-11 was that more of those planes didn't hit the Pentagon. No, I'm just kidding. I think the real tragedy of 9-11 was not just the loss of life, which was horrific, but much more our overreaction to the horror, the addiction to fear and rage that it fostered in so many of my countrymen's hearts, the pathological demand for a sense of security, and the willingness of our leaders to make a buck off blind, stupid public panic. Did it have to be this way? 20 years on, I can't help but wonder if the really heroically difficult choice would have been simply to accept the risk of terrorism as part and parcel of life in a free country. The way we accept deaths from car crashes, obesity, intoxication, and urban gunplay. Truly, I think the world would be safer and more democratic today if we had seen our national trauma as a chastisement from heaven and been spurred to repent of our nation's sins instead of beating our heads against the unforgiving desert in a spasm of wrath. Our leaders could have stressed the need for forgiveness as they reminded us that freedom is far from free. We could have honored the dead as martyrs to refresh the tree of liberty and doubled down on our commitment to an open, high-trust society. We could have capitalized on the world's sympathy instead of inviting its antipathy. But I'm getting into the speculative weeds here, so... I'll land this plane by saying I mostly don't blame the public for believing what they're told. I blame the near-total lack of leadership from which this country has suffered my entire life. I blame the mendacious military-industrial complex, the legions of feckless career politicians clinging pathetically to the trappings of power, and especially the corporate media with its staff of stuffed-suit sycophants, 
hypocrites. You cheerleaders of slaughter taught us safety as a sacred value and in its name nurtured a generation of cowards, even as you ordered the pride of your nation to dusty deaths and brokered the sale of the American mind to spies and criminals. I'll leave you with a passage from Jorge Luis Borges, the great Argentine spinner of tales. This is from the end of the story Deutsches Requiem, which imagines the final thoughts of Otto Dietrich Zerlinde, a Nazi war criminal awaiting execution. And it's worth quoting at length. He writes, Hounded across vast continents, the Third Reich was dying. Its hand was against all men, and all men's hands against it. Then, something remarkable happened, and now I think I understand it. I tested several explanations. None satisfied me. I feel a contentment in defeat, I reflected, because secretly I know my own guilt, and only punishment can redeem me. Then, I feel a contentment in defeat, I reflected, simply because defeat has come, because it is infinitely connected to all the acts that are, that were, and that shall be, because to censure or deplore a single real act is to blaspheme against the universe. I tested those arguments, as I say, and at last I came to the true one. It has been said that all men are born, either Aristotelians or Platonists. That is to say, there is no debate of an abstract nature that is not an instance of the debate between Aristotle and Plato. Down through the centuries and latitudes, the names change, the dialects, the faces, but not the eternal antagonists. Likewise, the history of nations records a secret continuity. When Arminius slaughtered the legions of Varus in a swamp, when he slashed their throats, he did not know that he was a forerunner of a German empire. Luther, the translator of the Bible, never suspected that his destiny would be to forge a nation that would destroy the Bible forever. Christoph Zerlinde, killed by a Muscovite bullet in 1758, somehow set the stage for the victories of 1914. Hitler thought he was fighting for a nation, but he was fighting for all nations, even for those he attacked and abominated. It does not matter that his ego was unaware of that. His blood, his will, knew. The world was dying of Judaism and of that disease of Judaism that is belief in Christ. We proffered it violence and faith in the sword. That sword killed us, and we are like the wizard who weaves a labyrinth and is forced to wander through it till the end of his days. Or like David, who sits in judgment on a stranger and sentences him to death, and then hears the revelation, Thou art that man. There are many things that must be destroyed in order to build the new order. Now we know that Germany was one of them. We have given something more than our lives. We have given the life of our beloved nation. Let others curse and others weep. I rejoice in the fact that our gift is orbicular and perfect. Now an implacable age looms over the world. We forged that age, we who are now its victim. What does it matter that England is the hammer and we the anvil? What matters is that violence, not servile Christian timidity, now rules. If victory and injustice and happiness do not belong to Germany, let them belong to other nations. Let heaven exist, though our place be in hell. Thank you for listening.